As you're coming back in, I'll just go ahead and start off with a little bit of a story, kind of like Mike did last week. So I was telling some people this week that I listened to Mike's sermon last week, and I was going, wait a moment, Mike didn't cover all the way to my text. He stopped about eight verses short. What's going on with that? So I went back and looked at my assignment this Sunday, and I realized that I'd only been studying for half of what I was supposed to be preaching on. So fortunately, I discovered that yesterday instead of this morning. That had been quite a shock. But uh, let me just go ahead and open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started here this morning. So, and dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege we have uh, to come before your presence today and just to be encouraged and challenged by your word. I just thank you for this text uh, from Mark this morning. I ask that uh, you would open my heart, that you open the hearts of everyone here, that we would hear the truth from your word. And that most importantly, as the book of James challenges us, that uh, we would not just hear it, but we'd apply it in our lives I just ask that you'd be honored right now, that uh, it would not be my words, but uh, your words coming straight from Scripture, and that uh, you'd be glorified now as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last month, if you were here when I preached, I said I did not want to be here. I was just here because, hey, sometimes you have to push through things that I did not feel very joyful, peace-filled, or any of that. And I talked about how we live by what we know, not by what we feel. And so I'm glad to say this morning, even though my circumstances haven't changed, for the first time in four months, I'm actually glad to be here and excited to go over our text today. Uh, so with that being said, we're going to start in Mark chapter 8, verses 27. If you have your copy of God's Word, let's open there and stand together once you have that. We're going to start in verse 27 and read to chapter 9, verse 1. So starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them, that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God has come with power. You may be seated. So before we jump into our text, I want to give us the context of this passage. Last week, Mike talked about the Pharisees had asked for a sign, which Jesus said they would receive no sign because they were not asking with a desire to see the truth. We saw the disciples on the boat not understanding Jesus' comment about the bread 
And then we also saw the healing of the blind man. And I really appreciated how Mike related all three of those things to spiritual blindness. And I was really particularly challenged when he talked about the blind man who after Jesus had touched his eyes, he could only see partially. He could see people, but they looked like trees walking around. And Mike related that to, is there as a believer spiritual blindness in my life that is there because of pride, because of sin, because of something that I have allowed to creep in? And so I was challenged by that, and it really ties in to this week's text, which we will see as we begin to cover. So in verse 27, we see here that Jesus and his disciples now are traveling onward to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And so they were currently in the region of Bethsaida. And Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. Caesarea Philippi was an especially pagan city. It was known for its worship of Greek gods and the temple devoted to the ancient god Baal, who we're familiar with in the scripture. That was the god that was worshipped in the time of Israel when Elijah was the prophet. We've all probably familiar with the Mount Carmel incident where Elijah praised to God to send down fire on his sacrifice, and the people acknowledged that God is the true God. And so it's kind of an ironic place as Jesus is heading to this town to ask his, his disciples who people say he is. And so we can see here there's a lot of varied opinion among the people about who Jesus is. John the Baptist, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. But Jesus hones in here. His point was never to get the opinions of the people out there. He hones in, he says, but what about you? This is an emphatic question. Jesus is saying, what do you, who do you say Jesus is? See, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter how other people view Jesus. Each and every one of us has to come to a point where we decide who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to you? No one gets into heaven on the apron strings of another's faith. We all answer to God. We are accountable ourselves to God. And so I'd be remiss here not to stop here and share the gospel. We at HGC, we as believers in Christ Jesus, believe that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standard of perfection and of obeying his commandments and his laws. We realize there's nothing good we can do to save ourselves, and we acknowledge that Jesus came down to this earth. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, took our place, rose again the third day, and as Scripture says, that anyone who believes that Jesus is Lord and Savior and receives him as Lord and Savior will be saved. That is the gospel. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's not difficult. doesn't matter if you're 3 or 97, you can understand this concept that we are sinners. We need a Savior. Jesus paid the price. If we receive him, we will be saved. What and who is Jesus to you? And Peter nails it. He comes right out of it and he says, You are the Messiah. And we're actually told in Scripture, if we go back to Matthew 16, verse 7, which gives us a little bit more of this conversation, we understand that Peter knew this because God revealed it to him. And brothers and sisters, that's why we pray for the unsaved. That's why we pray for people who do not see truth, because I'm here to tell you they are blind, and on our own, we will not recognize God. We will not recognize our need for a Savior. We need God to open our eyes to the truth. If you're witnessing to a friend, a family member, a co-worker, I'm, I'm telling you, you can present all the truth you want. You can preach the gospel as many times as you want. You can give all the proofs. 
that the Christian faith is legitimate. You can give evidences for God's existence. But I'm telling you, unless God removes their spiritual blindness, you're wasting your time. Because we have nothing in and of ourselves that's going to give us the grace or the ability to get people saved. That is a work that God has to do. I'll give you an illustration here. Let's say someone decides the Eiffel Tower does not exist. Let's say this person is very adamant about it. They start a website called noeiffeltower.com and they tell the entire world there is no such thing as the Eiffel Tower. I run into this person and I say, well, you don't believe in the Eiffel Tower? He says, no, I don't. He says, I say, well, what about the photos? He says, oh, they're photoshopped. I say, well, there's people who say they've been there. Oh, they're all conspir- conspiring together. And I finally say, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll pay for a plane ticket. We'll head over to France and I will show you the Eiffel Tower. We go there, we get there, but I realize as he gets off the plane, he's put a blindfold on. So, okay, I think that's kind of weird. But anyways, we go to the Eiffel Tower. We stand there. I say, there it is. And he says, I don't see anything. And I said, well, you got to take I'm not taking this off. There's no Eiffel Tower. It doesn't exist. As long as that blindfold is there, he can stand there in front of the Eiffel Tower all day and say it doesn't exist. I can't see it. Unless God removes that spiritual blindness from people, they're not going to see the truth. That is why we pray for God to open people's eyes because that is something that only God can do. Then I find it ironic here in verse 30 that Jesus then tells his disciples, hey Peter, you've given the correct answer and Jesus says he strictly warns them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. I mean, okay, the disciples know who Jesus is and he tells them not to tell anyone. And it's actually a very strict, a very firm command The Greek verb here Jesus used to tell them not to say anything is the same thing Jesus said to the unclean spirits when he told them, no, don't don't say who I am. That's a pretty strong verb tense. Why in the world would Jesus tell his disciples not to tell others about who he is? There's a very simple reason for this. The disciples, after all this time with Jesus, as we've seen as we continue to go through Mark, they still haven't got who Jesus is and what his purpose is in coming to this earth. They still don't get it. So many of the Jews were looking for Jesus as a political leader. They wanted him to come in and save them from the Romans and deliver them. And Jesus wasn't here to be a political leader. He wasn't here to be the king of this earth at this time. And the disciples did not understand this, and they still needed to be taught that the Messiah would actually suffer and die. They still did not understand that, and that is why Jesus forbid them from speaking because they still needed to learn. That's why in this next four verses we're going to go into, we're going to see Jesus is going to start to teach them about this. Now, we know this command would change with the Great Commission where Jesus would tell them to go, therefore, and tell the gospel, but they still hadn't got it yet. And so we go into verse 31, and we see Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. I really like the progression as Jesus talks about this. He must be killed, but not just that. He must be raised again after three days. We see very clear here that Jesus is the Savior God has given to us to save us from our sins. Disciples, they're still not getting it. Peter comes up to Jesus and he starts to rebuke him, saying, no, Lord, this is not going to happen. No, you're not going to die. You're not going to go to the cross. And in probably one of the harshest rebukes in Scripture of Jesus to one of his disciples, he says, he turns, he looks back at the other disciples, and then he says to Peter, get 
behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's a very harsh rebuke. If someone's telling, get behind me, Satan, that's, that's pretty harsh. And at first I read that and I've always thought, man, Jesus, that, that's a little harsh on Peter, isn't it? That's, I mean, after all, Jesus, this is basically the same thing you said to Satan himself in Matthew 4.10 when you were being tempted in the desert in the wilderness. Why are you being so harsh on Peter? As I studied this week, I came to realize this rebuke actually, it wasn't too harsh. Peter did indeed have in mind human concerns. And this is what, I'd never really thought about this before, and this really challenged me. Unknowingly, the disciples were trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, and thus, they were seeking to hinder his mission on earth. That's pretty serious. In the case of back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan's actions were intended to be evil. Satan wanted to get Jesus to get his eyes off the cross and step away from that. But on the other hand, the disciples were motivated by love and admiration for Jesus. They didn't want their Messiah to suffer. Still, their job and our job has never been to counsel, guide, and direct Jesus, but rather simply to follow him. When I thought about this, I was led to a passage in Romans chapter 11. It's called the doxology. And Paul has just considered all these great truths of the Christian faith. And he breaks out in this doxology of praise to God, starting in verse 33 of chapter 11. Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our counsel. We are simply called to follow him. I mean, we never do that, right? We never tell God, hey, God, I got an idea here. God, I want you to bless something. Uh, God, I think you should do things a little bit different here. Our job has never been to counsel or guide God, but rather to simply follow him in trust and dependence upon the Lord. As an application here, I came to a sobering realization in reading Peter and the disciples seeking to hinder Jesus from his mission. Do you realize that we as believers, this is a crazy thought, actually can be used by the enemy to destroy one another? Satan can actually use believers... In the church of Jesus Christ to destroy one another. Don't believe that? It's simple. Let's go to Scripture. Galatians 5.15, the Apostle Paul talking about the battle of the flesh and the spirit, says to the Galatian believers, if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you are going to be destroyed by each other. James chapter 4 talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire but you do not get what you want, you covet, you cannot get what you want, you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? There's a reason we see in John chapter 13 that Jesus commanded us as believers to love one another. He didn't say we'd be known by our music, our teaching, how we dressed, 
how we acted, what we did and didn't do. Jesus said in Scripture that we would be known as his followers by our love for one another. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is beautiful. I mean, think about this. If someone was here from every country on this earth right now in this room who was a believer, we may not understand each other's language. Our cultural backgrounds would be different. How we come together as a fellowship and worship would no doubt be different. I'm sure they worship on Sunday a little bit different in Africa than we do here in America or in Asia or wherever. But we'd be united because of one common thing, and that is Jesus and the gospel. Jesus and the gospel. That is our common bond, and that is what makes the church so beautiful. It's unity despite our differences, despite the fact that we might speak different languages, despite the fact that we might worship with a slightly different style of music, despite the fact that we might decorate our places where we come to worship a little bit differently. No matter what that is, we have unity in Christ. And we're told in Scripture that's the exact reason Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins. We're told in Revelation chapter 9, verse, I believe, actually should I take that back, chapter 5, verse 9, we're told right here that Jesus came to this earth and singing praises in heaven here, coming from verse 5, verse 9. Spiritual opposition turning the pages of Scripture. Here we go. <laughs> Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It says the saints are singing a new song saying, You are worthy, talking about Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, key phrase here, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I'm not saying as believers we tolerate sin in the church. We're supposed to call that out. But when it comes to our preferences, our personal convictions, we are not to destroy one another over those. Romans 14 and, Romans 14 and 15 talk very clear about that. When it comes, once again, when it comes to our preferences and our personal convictions, we are not to destroy one another over those. Our focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. So jumping back into the text here of Mark, I had to ask myself, why did Peter, why did Peter react the way he did? I thought about that and I had to think, you know what? Jesus led by example. He said again and again that he came, not to, he came to serve, not to be served. And then he went on to say that his servant is to be like his master. And so I think Peter, number one, Jesus wasn't fitting his mold of how he wanted Jesus to act and be. But on top of that, I think Peter understood the fact that Jesus led by example. And if Jesus is going to suffer, that means Peter has to suffer and Peter doesn't want to suffer. I mean, who wants to suffer? You know, sometimes we don't like how Jesus calls us to follow him because it is and often does lead us to suffering and difficulties. And now Jesus, to cap that all off, he now calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and he's going to teach them what God is looking for in a disciple, in a follower of Jesus. So jumping into the text here again, verse 34 it says, he calls the people to himself with his disciples also, and he says to them, whoever desires to be my disciple 
Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This word deny here is a very powerful word. In the Greek, this word appears two two ways, either the Greek word aronomia, with or without the prefix ap. In the absence, getting a little technical here, in the absence of this prefix, the sense of the word deny is to disown. Okay? But when that little prefix, ap, is added to the word, apernonia, it means to disown totally. Not just to disown, but to disown something totally, 100%. It is significant that the sterner meaning of this word is associated with Mark 8.34 and its parallels in the other gospel, gospels where Christ calls upon him who would be his disciple to deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. When we're talking about this denying, we're talking about forgetting oneself, losing sight of oneself and one's own entrance. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is totally 110% contrary to our human nature, to 100% disown totally ourselves, to lose sight of ourselves and our own interests. That's exactly what Jesus asked us to do. But he doesn't stop there. Not only that, you're to take up your cross. And Back in the ancient world here in this time, people being crucified would carry their cross to the place of crucifixion. So not only do we disown ourselves totally on top of that, Jesus wants us to pick up a cross and follow him, a means of execution. Okay, now we're supposed to follow Jesus. Okay, where are we going, Jesus? With this, we're just going to lug this cross. No, we're lugging this cross around to Calvary to our own deaths in serving the Lord. That's a pretty radical call. It's not popular. You don't hear a lot of people talking about we need to deny ourselves, we need to take up our cross and follow Jesus, even if it means death. We see more days, and there's nothing wrong with this, and there's, there's truth to it. We hear a lot about, oh, come to Jesus and have your problems solved and everything will be good and everything will be smooth. It'll be smooth sailing. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And there is some truth that Jesus does give us peace in the midst of storms of life, but he doesn't promise us that it's going to be an easy life. He doesn't promise us that all the difficult things we're going through are just going to instantly disappear, but he promises that he will be with us through the difficulties of life that we face. Okay, well, G.S., I'm not interested. That sounds a little radical. I kind of like my comfy, cozy American life. I don't want to do that. Well, G.S. has a word for those who would think that way. Moving on to verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus very clearly here underscores the value of the human soul. I mean, seriously, who cares if you live at the top of the ladder on this earth for a hundred years and have eternity in hell? This is something we don't talk about a lot. We do not talk about hell 
How many sermons have you heard preached on hell in the past 20 years? Probably not many. We need to have a biblical view of what hell is like. And when you grasp this, you realize why it's ridiculous that anyone would say, I'm not interested in following Jesus and denying myself because I'd rather enjoy my life here. Because the biblical view of what hell is like says it's a place of fire and brimstone. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says that those who are thrown there will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This isn't a hundred years you serve your time, a thousand years you serve your time, a million years you serve your time, a trillion years you serve your time. This is forever. My family and I were out of town last week and we went down to the Ark Encounter in the Creation Museum. And at the Creation Museum, you walk through what they call the seven seas of history, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation. And in this last exhibit they have before you exit the museum part, They have like Jesus' life and all these portraits portraying it. And two of the last portraits there in that room is a portrait of the uh, artist's representation of the Apostle John's vision of heaven and hell. And I normally blitz through most of the museum, but I always come to these two portraits. I always stop, and I normally will stand there for a few minutes, sometimes a half hour, and just take in these portraits. And I'll be honest, 80 to 90% of the time, I'm taking in the portrait on hell rather than the one on heaven. And the reason is, it's just sobering looking at that picture. The artist's representation, they have the Apostle John kind of standing on this rock looking down into this abyss. And you see all these people and just all this fire and you can just see everyone's in utter agony and torment. And I always stand there for a few minutes because it reminds me why when it comes to the difficulties of this life, why I'm still pressing on, why I'm still preaching the gospel even if it makes me unpopular, why I'm still standing firm on truth, because that is the destiny of everyone who doesn't know Jesus is hell. Eternity without God in a place of torment forever and ever. I'd be remiss not to mention, I know the popular argument today is a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. I want to be very clear. God sends absolutely no one to hell. People choose hell. God's provided a Savior Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. The option to be saved is there. And if people choose not to take that, that's their own choice. And some people say, well, what about those who haven't heard about Jesus? Well, Romans 1.20 is very clear that we know there's a God. And on top of that, we're told in Scripture that those who seek God earnestly will find him. If people seek God, even if they've never heard the name of Jesus, God will reveal himself to them. I'm confident of that. We've heard stories about Muslims in our countries who have had visions. God is able to reach people. And yes, that does not by any means diminish that we as the church are the ones who are called to proclaim the gospel. But if people earnestly seek God, they will find him. God sends no one to hell. That is a choice people make. You know, I was also reflecting this week too, these difficulties in life that come denying ourselves and taking up our cross is so hard at times. But then then I just had to think about, wait a moment, Ephesians 6 tells us we're in a spiritual battle for souls. Let me give you another story here, another story illustration to show why the Christian life should be difficult. 
Let's imagine for a moment that these people who are in bondage to sin, who are heading to hell, are held captive in this dungeon. All right? Let's say this takes place in the medieval time period. And you go with a contingent of knights to rescue these people in this dungeon. Let me tell you, if I get there and the door's unlocked and all the guards say, yeah, come on in, here's the key, take them out. I'm going to be a little, what's going on here? You got these people in prison, we're coming to break them out. And you're, you're, you're not just going to sit there and let us walk in, unlock the prison door and get these people out. Right, we're fighting against Satan who hates God, who wants to see people heading to hell. He's not going to sit by idly while we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not going to sit by idly as we attempt to attack the strongholds he has in our culture. This is war. And we are fighting for souls, and it's going to be difficult. It should be. It's war. If it wasn't, we wouldn't call it war. Scripture wouldn't talk about it like a spiritual battle. The enemy is not going to sit idly by as we seek to proclaim the gospel and see people come to a saving knowledge of jesus christ so be prepared expect battle get up in the morning prepare yourself for battle put on the armor of god be vigilant it's coming we're not facing it in a day are we even on the front lines we should be experiencing spiritual battles we should expect to get attacked But praise God, we have the armor of God, we have God's presence, and he is our victory, and he will carry us to victory as we depend upon him. You know, I don't know what your cross is. I don't know the difficulties or the trials you're facing in your life as you follow Jesus. Maybe it's a sickness, a health issue, a co-worker is difficult, a friend or family member who's unsaved. I don't know. I know the things that I face, and I know that what I face and what you face have one thing in common. Jesus is worth it. Romans 8.18 says that I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Whatever difficulties or battles we're facing as Christians, they're temporal. Eternity's coming. One day, this warfare that we are constantly facing will cease. There'll be no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow. That day's not here yet. And until that day, we need to find our strength in the Lord to continue to press on for His glory, His honor, and His praise. We go into verse 38 here. And Jesus challenges the people there and says, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Once again, this word ashamed is used in its strongest sense in the language. When Jesus says, my words, he is referring to the gospel. Now as I read this, I came across thinking, you know, this is probably a passage that some people would say, see, if believers are ashamed of Jesus, Jesus is going to be ashamed of them when he comes back a second time. To which I respond, context, context, context. The previous three verses here, we are talking about Jesus challenging those who are saying, I don't want to follow you. He says, look, you're going to lose your soul. 
If you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. What good is that? Jesus is talking in that context to the unsaved. Yeah, if you don't want to follow me, here's the alternative. You're going to lose your soul. I'm going to be ashamed of you. That is who Jesus is addressing in these three verses. This passage is not saying believers will lose their salvation in Jesus. I went to 1 John and did some reading and where, Jesus taught, where God talks about, you know, believers will be unashamed of Jesus. We are the children of God. We will follow him. It doesn't mean we might slip up. We might slip up at times still, but ultimately we will persevere because of God's Holy Spirit that is at work in us. I came across this quote by someone who was martyred for their faith talking about the cost of following Christ and found it encouraging and, and, and very, very profound. This person on their night before this man suffered martyrdom for his faith, he said, True it is that life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal death is more bitter and eternal life is more sweet. One more time. Life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal death is more bitter and eternal life is more sweet. It's about a matter of perspective. Eternity versus the temporal. In chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God has come with power. When Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God with power, it could be him talking about his transfiguration, where some of the disciples saw him transfigured in glory. As this verse always precedes that passage in this gospel, in the gospels, it could also be Jesus talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit or the second coming of Christ. Now, as we come here to the end of our text, when it comes to application, one of the first things I asked myself this week was, who needs the gospel in my life? Who do you and I know that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? And when that person comes to mind, I encourage you to pray for them. Pray for them. Because as we know from Scripture, we can't open their eyes. God has to. The second thing I had to think about too, and this was, this was hard because that word deny yourself. I don't know about you, but I tend to be a selfish person. And so this aspect of totally denying what I want over serving Jesus, I had to ask myself, where have I become preoccupied like Peter with human concerns rather than the concerns of God? Where have I become preoccupied with human concerns rather than the concerns of God? Look, there's nothing wrong with working hard at our jobs, with seeking to provide for our families, with doing leisure activities. There's nothing wrong with all the things we do in life. But as believers, our sole number one goal, number one focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his name. Everything we should do should be driven by that reality. That time is running out. That people need to hear the gospel. And with that in mind, where are you and I refusing to deny ourselves, choosing to please ourselves rather than the king? We live in a very me-centric society. Don't believe that? I, phone, Face, 
book, Insta, Instant Graham. We live in a society that is driven in our minds that it's all about us. Jesus makes it very clear life is not about us, but about Him. And the final thing that I want us to challenge us was to think about as we leave here. You know, Jesus, He is our lifeline. I'm here to tell you that all these battles in life that we face, we need Him. This world is relentless. Satan is relentless in seeking to pull us away from God. So I had to ask myself a hard question. Honestly, how is my time talking to the Lord in prayer and opening His Word? This is key. The older I get, which is kind of an oxymoron statement, I guess, but you know, in all sincerity, as I continue to get older in life, I'm just seeing that this, this, this book right here, this is our manual, this is our sword, this is everything we need for life. Because I'm here to tell you, the lies out there are more plentiful than the sand on a seashore. The deceptions out there are sometimes as hard to spot as counterfeit bills. It's just so constant. And it comes from every angle. You know, it can even come from believers, as I said earlier. When sometimes we get hung up on things. And so unless I am 110% grounded in God's word, it's going to be rough. I know we say it all the time. Got to pray. Got to spend time in God's word. Got to stay in the word. And we keep stressing it because it's that important. It takes precedence over everything else in our lives that we are spending time in God's word and prayer because without that, we will not be prepared to face the battles and difficulties and temptations of the day. So I encourage you, make that a priority. You know you're going to be fought a lot over keeping that a priority in life, but it must be held to by the grace and power of God. I'm going to close this in prayer here. If I have Stephen come back up here. You know, I know life is difficult. I know we face battles. I know it's not easy to one deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. But God has promised that his power is sufficient in our weakness. God has promised that he goes before us, that he will be with us. And so whatever you're facing today, I encourage you, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Eternal life is sweet and what a blessing it is to live with purpose for the glory and praise of another. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I just thank you for the challenging words that you've given us in your word today. I thank you that Jesus has led by example what it looks like to deny ourselves, to forget what we want, and to follow and pursue you. And I just pray for us as a congregation here today, as a body of believers, I pray that, that we would truly follow you, that we would leave what we want behind that we just serve you. And Lord, I pray today, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room is saved. I pray for those who maybe have yet to take up that cross, deny themselves and follow you. I pray, Lord, that they would come to you in the day as your word simply says that if we just believe in you and declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. I pray for that, Lord. And I pray that you would continue to be glorified as we wait your second coming or the day that you take us home, whichever comes first. May we live this life for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.